It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Matt Carter, Chief Executive Officer of Ariaka Networks. Matt is a cloud and technology industry veteran leading Ariaka's long-term market strategy and day-to-day operations while guiding the company's vision for an increasingly interconnected world. Prior to this role, Matt served as president and CEO of IntelliQuint, a publicly traded provider of cloud-based networking services for global enterprises. Matt previously held a series of executive positions with Sprint Corporation, including serving as president of the Sprint Enterprise Solutions Division. He also served as president of Boost Mobile, a leading provider of no-contract wireless services. Matt earned his master's degree in general management from the Harvard Business School and his bachelor's degree from Northwestern University. Matt Carter, welcome into the corner office. Thanks for having me. Great to have you, Matt, and uh, wonderful uh, on this beautiful California day where I am. I hope you're having good weather where you are. Uh, Probably a little chilly. (laughs) No, no, it's good. It's all good here. I love it. Well, listen, Matt, we always like to start to hear a little bit about the early years before we get into your current uh, CEO status and how you've gotten there. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. So I'm the oldest of five. Um, Grew up in Boston, son of a police officer. I couldn't tell by the accent. It's, it's 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 pretty big at times, but inner city, right? Did you you're right in the city? Yeah, I grew up in the city. Um, yeah. My parents had migrated from the South um, in Louisiana. Okay, and landed in Boston, and so the oldest of five, and it was yeah. a wonderful childhood, and um, and from there ended up going to boarding school in Maine. All right, right. What what, what did mom and dad do? Uh, I think you're just about to begin to tell us a little bit about your dad's profession. You know, dad was a police officer. Um, he had started his career in the military and then migrated into a police officer. And mom um, was a stay-at-home mom. She had five kids. Yeah, she, had, <laughs> yeah, she had five kids and, and was very busy. But, you know, back in those days, um, you know, your parents sort of let you go outside and play. Unlike today That's where right. there's a lot yeah. of, you know, um, shadow parenting and things like that. But, um, yeah, mom had her hands full with five kids with baseball games, soccer, football, and all the all the sports activities we were all I can imagine. In. Are you all pretty close in age? So, yeah. So um, we spread between, um, and uh, I think the youngest is is 10 years younger than me. So I'm right. the oldest. Yeah. So pretty and close. Then there are three in between. Yeah. So all pretty couple close years in apart. Age. That's correct. Yeah. 
Awesome. Awesome. And and what were some of the things that uh, your parents inspired you with uh, as you were growing up? You know, if you think back to those days of dad being a police officer and his background in the military, mom, obviously, with really taking the tasks at home, what were some of those earliest memories about mom, mom and dad? First and foremost is that because of where they grew up, the South, you know, they had a, a very strong sort of work ethic. And both parents grew up on on farms. And so they had this sort of work ethic, get up very yeah. early, put in a good day's work. So early on, we all had a, a very strong work ethic and a discipline. You know, dad right. and mom were very disciplined. They were very structured in their and how they lived their lives. And so from early on, it was that. And then the second, um, you know, mom and dad were very big on education. Um, neither mm. one of them went to college. They both finished right. high school, but they had a very strong desire for all their kids to be better, um, be better educated. And so dad would come home after work. And the first thing he would ask us all, um, he says, did your kids get your lessons done? I guess it's call it homework, <laughs> but he called it That's lessons. That's right, the lessons. Yeah, yeah. Did, you get, did you get your lessons done? And so from an early age, it was really those two things that stuck out the most. And yeah, I would say the last yeah. thing, honestly, is that unconditional love. I mean, mom right. and dad were extremely supportive, um, very um, loving, caring. Um, and so we never felt a lack of um, support and love from our parents. Yeah. Yeah. Great foundations. Did all five of you go on to college? Yes. All five of us wow. uh, went to college. Um, two went into the military, um, but all five um, and got educated at college through the military. But all of us finished college and ended up having professional careers um, as well. Yeah. Awesome. Were you a good student in grade school? I think so. I was. The things that you like to do, yeah, I guess, well, I right? I was very curious. Um, uh-huh. That's a good So I good remember trait. just early on, back in those days, you, you would have salespeople come by your house and sell you the encyclopedia, you know, sets. And That's right. that was a yeah. very sort of um, um, refreshing and curious adventure uh, for me. Mm. So it really stimulated my mind. And I took that to grade school and et cetera, huh. just this sort of constant questioning, constant curiosity that really ignited my imagination. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good thing to have. What about outside of class? Uh, we involved in sports. You'd mentioned uh, mom and dad ferrying you around a bit, music, theater. What were some of your extracurricular activities? So primarily, so back in those days, you know, the kids would all play outside, unlike today, sure. right? We that's would right. That's go right. outside and <clears throat> organize, always playing sports, basketball, baseball, hockey, uh, football. We didn't specialize in any one sport. We were right. playing, you know, sports year round. That was one piece. And then the second was that um, I was somewhat of a creative kid and spent mm. a lot of time um, doing plays and being part of this sort of community playhouses oh. and acting and stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. What kind of roles did you play? Were you typically the lead? Did you were in the chorus? What were you know, all of the above. Uh, uh -huh, the uh -huh. one thing I didn't want to play was Othello because I thought that was just <laughs> too stereotypical. But uh, yes. other, than, other than that, I, I was uh, across the board and supporting, leading, singing, um, dancing, any role just to 
have a good time. It was all about just bonding and friendship and just sure. having a creative outlet. It was all fun, fun and games. It was terrific. Well, and I think those types of activities really kind of hone your presentation skills as well, right? You think those have helped you later in life? Uh, absolutely. You know, you, you yeah. get over stage fright, I guess, right. so to speak. Right. I, think I, I thought I read one day where Jerry Seinfeld said that he, there was a question and most people said that they fear public speaking more than they fear death. And um, so I never, I never, I never feared. Never had that problem. Yeah, I never had that problem. No, I enjoyed um, getting on stage and performing. Walk into any room and be comfortable. That's terrific. It was just yeah, part yeah. of, you know, just part of the life I grew up with. Yeah. What about entrepreneurial things, Matt? Were you involved in uh, things that, you know, generated some extra pocket money while you were growing up? Absolutely. So, of course, it started off back in those days selling newspapers. And of Boston course, the paper big, room. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. The paper room. Boston was a big yeah. newspaper city. Absolutely. And um, so I did that to make a little bit of extra um, change. And then, you know, small little things like we would sell candies and cookies and, and, and those types of stuff. Um, even the Boy Scouts where we did those right. things as well. So I've always had a always had a disposition towards trying to make a little bit of extra pocket change. You know, dad and mom would give us an allowance, right. uh, but it was never enough to cover the other things we would want, <laughs> want to do. So they encouraged us, quite frankly, to go out and yeah. Yeah. And make a little bit of extra coin for ourselves. What were some of those other things you spent that pocket money on? Well, you know, movies, <laughs> uh, trying to woo, you know, the opposite sex, you know, those types, <laughs> of, you know, those types of things, records. So back in the day, you know, we were really big into uh, music. Sure. And we would go to the record store and yeah, get look those at LPs. the top 25, you know, songs right. and buy this, buy that and, and stuff like that. But it was primarily records food and wooing, you know, the opposite sex. You know, kids miss that today, right? Because they buy everything online. Going to the record store was a social event, wasn't it? It really was. Because, huh? you know, you sit there and you get a chance to listen <laughs> to listen. different music with yeah. other people yeah. and interact and talk about it and, and stuff like that. I, I really do believe there is a um, a lot what the kids miss in terms of today, in terms of this social True. interaction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right? Because, you know, most kids come home today, they go in their rooms. Right. Back in my Put day, we come sets. home, do our lessons, <laughs> and they go outside and play until it's right. time, time for dinner. That's uh, right. right. It's That's a whole right. different sort of way of growing up. Yeah, yeah. What about jobs? Uh, you know, any early jobs while you were in high school and then getting into college, things that, that were formative uh, with regards to some of your work uh, later on? So always had a summer job and yeah. really started, you know, outside of when I did the um, newspaper route and those types of what I call hustle jobs. Then right. back in those days, Boston would have these summer programs uh, for various communities where you oh. could go work um, around the city. And typically, there were things like community-based types of jobs where we would right. go in, right. clean up certain areas, plant gardens mm -hmm. um, in certain areas and, and things like that. So got a really good taste of just the intersection of all of Boston working these various summer job programs. I also worked at McDonald's, um, okay. worked at a grocery store. So yeah. I always had a summer job um, growing up um, in Boston. And I can remember my you know, first paycheck, and I thought it was mm. a lot of money. It was minimum wage. Um, yeah. But boy, you know, you're bringing home $50, $60 <laughs> you know, a week. Back it's in exciting. those days, that was pretty good. That was yeah. pretty good coin um, and yeah. things. But 
always had a summer job and um, it was really, you know, participate in that. Thinking back to some of those jobs and maybe some of the folks that you you worked for, were there any in people in particular that were inspiring to you? You know, maybe lessons that you learned early on that you took with you along your career? You know, really good question. You know, I don't think there's any one person that sticks mm-hmm. out in terms of uh, an adult. It was actually mostly the um, people whom I worked with who were my age, who mm-hmm. came from different mm-hmm. parts of the city. And, you know, because growing up in Boston, you're kind of in your own neighborhood and you have different perceptions about people in other neighborhoods. But sort of working these summer jobs, you met different folks and you got different perspectives and you learn different ambitions. Like folks are thinking differently than you. I've had people who might got exposed to who were talking about certain kinds of colleges to consider that I'd never even thought about. And so... I would say it was the people whom, you know, who came from Opened different, your mind yeah, up. different, just different yeah. parts of the community. And by the way, it was across all socioeconomic class lines, these summer jobs where you um, awesome. had these um, groups of people and you just learned some different things. I got exposed to different things that were that I didn't get exposed into my own sort of little small world yeah. um, in Boston. Yeah. So you went on to college, the first of five to do so. Um, how did you decide where to go and what to study? So I ended up going to a boarding school in mm-hmm. Maine, um, and um, how I ended up there. And that was for high school. That was for high school, no. right. And how I ended up there, my dad, police officer, did um, call, it was called detail work for Senator Ted Kennedy. Uh-huh. And it was during uh-huh. a time when Boston was going through busing and desegregation, and there was a lot of noise and challenges related mm. to that. And so they just made a comment to my dad, hey, you ought to have, you know, Maddie, that's what they you know, call me sometimes, you ought to have Maddie go consider going to boarding school. And dad took that and ran with it and learned wow. a lot about it and ended up applying, going to a boarding school called Gould Academy up in, uh, up in northern Maine. And from there, there was a guidance counselor who was actually from the Midwest. Hmm. And... Uh, and because I participated in performance plays and things like that at school, he said, you ought to consider a school called Northwestern. Never heard of it. Oh, yeah. Heard of Northeastern. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. North, Northwestern. Where the hell is that place? And so <laughs> ended up applying, had zero intentions of going. And Northwestern ended up calling him up um, a day before the due date to, to accept. And say, hey, we haven't heard from Matt. And he came mm. to my dorm and said, hey, look, I think you need to go to this school here. This is a great school. Yeah. And then he called my dad up. And my dad said, you're going. And that's how I ended up at Northwestern. <laughs> that's great. That's terrific. Did you go on a scholarship? Was there no, no, uh, sports no, you know, or academics? I guess, you know, back, yeah. you know, there was a combination of back in those days, Pell Grants and loans. Right, financial so aid. We had yeah, a, right. Right. So we had a combination of Pell Grants and, yeah. and loans to, to go to Northwestern. And you were there all four years? All four years. Loved it. Awesome. What was the first job out of college? I uh, went back to Boston. And, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Good way to get back, yeah. perhaps, no, well, in some way. You know, I really <laughs> love Chicago, but yeah. ended up going back to um, Boston, working for a company called Raytheon. They oh, were sure. a yeah. uh, government defense contractor. and They have a used to have a big operation right outside of Hear Me in Santa Barbara in Goleta. Yeah, in that's Larson exactly Forest right. right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. so great company. Um, a Boston Institute, a Massachusetts institution, mm. and essentially started off as a um, production um, assistant working on the floor, managing 
um, union a union workforce. So was your degree in engineering? No, or it wasn't. So I, was a, I was a radio TV film major. I should have okay. I should have said <laughs> to you that after I graduated Northwestern, I went out actually to LA to try to break into the industry like a lot uh-huh. of my classmates. I ended up um, starting off working at a Mexican restaurant. And I got a phone call one day from my dad's partner. And he said, hey, I'm here at the bar with your dad. He's distraught. That his son over the Northwestern is actually you ended up in of, LA. Out of, out of LA working at a burrito restaurant. <laughs> What's the matter with you, right? Oh my gosh. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. And I just remember just feeling so bad about it. It's like uh, his partner's. Well, was how long are you out there? A month or two? All right. So I was out there like for like a couple of months. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Again, you, uh, you try it, that, that's an industry that's very much you, oh, know, you gotta yeah, pa- yeah. You know, patience and stuff. So Absolutely. I ended up feeling bad. And back in those days, you would listen to your, your parents. Of course. You know, a real job for them. But my dad was not working for, you know, with a college degree, working for some restaurant as a waiter. He thought a real job <laughs> is, how, how are you going to support a family? You know, what kind of job is this? So a real Absolutely. job is going back to Raytheon. You know, yeah, Raytheon uh, has benefits. It has pension. You know, exactly. you can go there and retire, work 30, it's 40 years. Whole life, yeah. Right, right, that type of, right. that, that, was, that was his mindset. <laughs> And so that's how I ended up back in Boston, worked for Raytheon, and did that for three years. Did he have an introduction there for you, or did you did you apply for the job? I just so so my so my my, um um um, aunt worked at Raytheon. Okay, and so she was able to make an introduction to the HR person, and they were like, "Oh wow, yeah, we would love you know for you to come do this," and and so it was you know it was it was by the way a great job. Um, Learned a lot. And was yeah. very appreciative of the experience uh, working at Raytheon. Do you remember the first time you started managing people? Was it was it there at Raytheon or was it, it was a there? It job? was there at Raytheon, yeah, and it cool. was a very um, it's a very good lesson in 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 I guess early leadership for me and dealing with people because the people I was um, sort of supervising um, were very um, skeptical of mm. college people. Um, they viewed us, you know, I was management, they were, blue collar, right, right. They were, they were, um, um, sort of blue collar union uh, folks, but they had a real skepticism towards folks like, um, uh, me and part of your job was trying to, you know, get them to be able to support the, the work, the, the timelines and all of those types of things. So you learned a lot about how to talk to people, how to make them feel comfortable um, with you. I, you know, it has some early mistakes because, you know, you come across when you're young, you think you know everything <laughs> and you get smacked around a little bit by coming across as arrogant, elitist, uh, Mr. Sure. Know-it-all. But over time, you start, started to fit in, started to yeah, become yeah. part of the, you know, the crew, so to speak. It was, it, was, it was a wonderful learning experience. And you felt by the time you left, you had uh, really identified with them and, and were very empathetic. I did, you know, because a lot of yeah. us, I mean, I grew up, you know, with a lot, I grew up in a working class neighborhood of Boston. So I grew up around a lot of folks that were like the folks that I encountered at, at Raytheon. Um, but because I had gone to prep school, gone sure. to a Northwestern, you, you get a different kind of exposure. And I think when you're young, sometimes you think you know it all, you think you're smarter than everybody else, and maybe that comes across rubbing people the wrong way. Uh, but it was, again, it was an early lesson in emotional intelligence and mm. how to mm. connect and communicate 
um, with people that I like to think has served me, you know, throughout my career, the yeah, good and the yeah. bad, you know, of it all, as I sort of learned to become better at emotional intelligence. You know, we all have had uh, great bosses in the past and like great teachers, we remember some of their names and the lessons learned. But, you know, there's also those bosses that perhaps weren't quite as good. <laughs> and and my question's kind of around, you know, what's kind of the worst lesson that you've had? You know, don't have to mention any names, but maybe behavior that you saw or something early on and said, oh, man, boy, I'm sure going to be different than that guy. A per, you know, I had a, a boss who, quite frankly, was all about himself and how mm. he talked to people. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of profanity, a lot of putting mm. down. Um, it was just a very harsh um, interaction that yeah, he yeah. had with um, with people. I mean, today, an older person, I'm sure, as well, older person, o older style. It yeah, was, yeah. Oh, and and today, if he said those things, you know, today's <laughs> workforce would have been gone. Courtroom already. Yeah, yeah, he, right, yeah, exactly. In terms of how yeah. he talked to women and, mm. um, and and stuff like that. So I just saw how, and I, by the way, it was a very, it was, a, it was a leadership style of fear. You know, he was able to yeah, yeah. inject his fear onto on, onto others. And it was, a, a again, an early lesson around, boy, one day, if I'm ever in his, in his role, <laughs> I will never treat people um, this way. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. Uh, that worked for people for a very, very long time. Um, you know, I remember growing up, I'm a little older than you, but I remember growing up and seeing that type of behavior as well and saying, boy, oh boy, how do these people get ahead? And yet, you know, it was uh, <laughs> so often it was uh, a behavior that was that was rewarded. That's exactly right. He got the yeah, job done. Yeah, and that's how people done. talked about it. Hey, he gets the job done. Yeah, um, yeah. But he got but he left a lot of collateral damage. <laughs> getting the yeah. job done. <laughs> a lot of things on the roll. Well, let's fast forward. You know, you've obviously had a wonderful career. You've spent time in telecommunications. I know you serve on a bunch of boards, but, you know, just kind of give me the, the, the path, you know, that kind of took you from, you know, your early days at Raytheon, you know, through to Coca-Cola and looks like Bristol Myers, of course, in your background and then getting into to uh, to telecom, um, you know, give me kind of the thumbnail sketch did you always kind of have the corner office as your goal uh did you kind of take jobs as they come as you transferred from cpg to, to telecom tell yeah, us a little I think bit it's about still, that it's, it's really the last so I, I never had this goal of i'm gonna i want to be ceo or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. never even or never even thought of that i would have big c level um type corner of office guys yeah, corner <laughs> office guys i was never that was that, that was never a goal. It was always yeah. my my. It's it's funny, you know. I, I I'm also somewhat philosophical. So to me, first and foremost, is I wanted to be happy, and right. and I remember talking to Dad about this. He can he could never understand. What do you mean you want to be happy? What, what, what kind of goal is that? And it's like <laughs> I just, you got a job, you got a pension, right? Exactly, right? right. You got health care. What more do you need? What, what, what more do you need? Exactly. And so, so I always had this thought thought process that first and foremost, I just want to be, I just want to be happy. I want to get up every day and enjoy what I do and the people whom I um, interact with. And because I always had a creative disposition, uh, I like thinking creatively. I like, I love movies and plays right. and right. all of those things, but I'm also analytical in my thought process. Finding work that combined the two mm. uh, was very um, motivating for me. So hence, 
after I graduated Northwestern, went to work for Raytheon, then went, got my MBA at Harvard, uh, I started my career off um, in marketing with um, right. Bristol Myers. So Bristol yeah, Myers sort of as yeah. a you know the classical you know consumer packaged goods marketing experience, knowing how to um, manage um, launch brands, right. manage brands, sell them through retail, all of those things, and then from there to Coca Cola. View I view Bristol Myers as sort of like the um, minor leagues giving me the springboard, the yeah, right. The farm leagues before right, you went to the right. big, and then you go to Coca Cola. <laughs> now you're getting kind of this global, yeah, you know, company yeah. known for marketing and branding, um, et cetera. And then after a while, you know, it's like I, I felt like I developed some good chops as a as a marketeer, mm. but I wanted to take those experiences and go into other areas where I could you know, be maybe disruptive and innovative. I always had this right. innovative thing in me as well. So in 1996, the Telecom Act of 1996, you know, was promised as a way to open up the telecom market. And, that and all these telecom companies are out there trying to figure out how to compete. Because, right. you know, since right. they were monopolies, right, in their own sort of um, regions. Right. And right. they wanted people who had worked in competitive markets. And so they thought Coke, Pepsi, oh, that's very yeah. competitive. Come on board. And I was able to join you Bell were fertile South. ground. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And so I was yeah. able to join there and they asked me to work on something called the internet, which they knew nothing about. They said, all right. we know is that somebody up there in the DC area, this AOL is using our network to do all this stuff. And so I ended up being the um, head of marketing for our, you know, Bell South um, yeah. internet service. And that got right, me into right. really into the technology space yeah. and then from there awesome. to wireless, et cetera. And you had a little banking foray too, interesting. I did, right? you know. And, yeah, and that was kind of an interesting really, pivot. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 so again, there was, you know, we all can make mistakes in our career and that was actually quite frankly a, a, a colossal mistake on my end, mm -hmm. although no regrets. But only to the extent that, okay, banking, financial services, is another stay it conventional industry that needs um, disruption. Maybe right, we can right. bring some of that disruptive um, um, experience to uh, banking. Yeah. But yeah. no, it, it just. They're pretty, it, pretty stay at industry. It's a pretty no. stay at industry yeah, and, yeah, and slow yeah. moving. So it just yeah, was not yeah. a good not cultural a good fit. fit for me. Yeah. So hence, I retreated back to. You know, telecom and wireless, et cetera. And as I understand it, this is your second CEO assignment, correct? At Ariaka Networks. Yes, you it had is. been That's CEO correct. previously. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was, um, after I left Sprint, I became CEO of a company called Intelliquent, a public company right. based out of Chicago. Right. right. And then after a successful exit with that, joined Ariaka, um, a 10 year old startup um, um, software hmm. communications company in Silicon Valley. And so this is my second stint as um, a CEO. That's awesome. And are you based in San Mateo? I'm based in San Mateo. Yeah. Um, yes. Awesome. And uh, tell me a little bit about Ariaka now. How many employees? How many uh, you know offices around the world? Yeah. So we we operate in 63 countries around the world, roughly wow. over 350 plus people um, yeah. um, um, globally. More than half my employees reside in India, and maybe another 15 percent. Um, in, in Europe. Right. Your developers, mostly in, in India, I presume. Uh, and we also customer support. Uh -huh. um, right. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah and we, also, we have all the functions there, though, too. We have some HR, we have some marketing, 
um, et cetera. So we, we have actually a very um, diversified workforce uh, in terms of capabilities um, and functions um, in India. And then in Europe, well, you know, primarily um, sales. And then here in the United States, North America, uh, we have all the various um, functions. So right, we're, right. you know, been around 10 years and yeah. we are considered the leader in the space that we compete in. We really help companies who are going through this digital transformation accelerate that transformation to the cloud. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And privately owned at the moment. Uh, we are. Yeah. We have right. Um, right. several investors, you know, with, yeah. um, Goldman Sachs as you know, one of the blue chip investors um, in our um, um, portfolio. Yeah, awesome. About four or five hundred employees, I think, overall. You mentioned uh, it's over three hundred and fifty. We're forecasted to get to about um, four hundred and twenty-five awesome. um, by the end of the year. So we're growing um, yeah. phenomenally. Yeah. The biggest challenge, of course, is in a low unemployment market. Yeah. It's <laughs> finding good people. Finding yeah, good people, absolutely. and and, and, and we're being very, um, you know, thoughtful about about the people whom we add. Uh, we just don't right, want to put right. bodies in. We want to add the right people. Cultural fit's very important. Yes. Well, you and I can have a separate conversation as and when you might need us, but uh, <laughs> it's certainly help you in that area. We have another client in San Mateo, the Essex Property Trust Company. We've just started a search with them. And, and you know, frankly, even at the director level, we have to do national searches, right? Because it's just so difficult to find good local people that are already in the Bay Area. Um, but as an aside, uh, I've heard it said before that, you know, it can be somewhat uncomfortable, uh, particularly in the leadership role, you know, having your answers questioned rather than your question answered as a CEO. And have you been in that situation? If so, how do you handle that? So I think that part of being a good leader is being a good listener and mm. being thoughtful about when you uh, exert your opinion into the conversation. Because you know, I learned this early on in my career in watching other mm. bosses who yeah. felt the need to espouse their point of view and then everybody defaulted to their point of view. And you <laughs> never got the benefit of other points of views. Right. And right. so I, I, I like to, um, I'm not there to provide answers. Now, when I have to, I, I will do so if there is an impasse. But what I like to do is ask questions. And I believe asking questions help us all to get hopefully to a better outcome um, for, you know, for us. So yeah. I'm one to, you know, try to stimulate that because I think that we're better when we are much more inclusive than we are by, you know, we're only going to be, you know, sometimes I say, you know, I used to have a boss who always felt he had the answers and right. made sure that everybody knew he had the answers. We were never going to be as good as his answers. So That's we never, right. right, that was our ceiling, him. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> so right. I, I just think that the ceiling could be higher when you actually include more people. Yeah, no question about it. Would you say that that's kind of part of how your leadership has evolved over time? And if so, um, maybe some other lessons that you've learned and as you've you know continued to grow in your leadership ability? Yeah, absolutely. So I once had a boss as well. I had a lot of bosses over the years, but uh, <laughs> I, I used to think that you know, sitting at a table of folks, that it was all about, okay, we're trying to get to the right answer. And then that's really what it's all about. And he yeah. pulled me off to the side one day. He says, yes, that may be so, but you're not thinking in terms of how Joe over here is thinking or how mm. Sue's over here thinking. 
you're not picking up what their motivations are. Sue and Joe are not interested in the right answer. Sue and Joe are interested in what's best and what's best for them. The yeah. lesson there, honestly, was he, he was asking me to take a step back, be thoughtful, be observant, mm -hmm. understand what other people's motivations are before you go out there and overly commit your point of view, which may be in com direct conflict with others. Even though your point of view may be right, part of your job as a leader is to figure out how to bring other people along. That's right. And so yeah. that's, I think, really how my leadership has mostly evolved. And by the way, it's still Ooh. a work in progress. I'm by far a finished product. I mean, I still make mistakes <laughs> every single day in, deal in dealing with people. That's why Shakespeare is actually one of my favorite um, authors in the world, because this dude knew something about people, about motivations. Sure so if you read yeah. any of his plays, his whole thing is about the motivations of other people. And so that's been part of what I think has evolved in, in terms of my leadership style. At the end of the day, you don't get anywhere without bringing other people along. How do you no do that, that as a yeah, leader? Yeah, awesome. How do you decide if it's time to micromanage or, or to stay out of somebody's sandbox? I think that's the hardest thing as a CEO is mm -hmm. to know where do you add value and where are you a hindrance? So that's why I think... People say being a CEO is one of the loneliest places to be. It really <laughs> is because you you come into it really is because you you come into work and you're asking yourself where can I add value? Where am I going to be spending my time? Some CEOs like to create what's just called this routine, and this right. gives them a sense of okay, this is how they're adding adding value. And, and by the way, there's there's some there, there is some benefit to creating the right kind of habits in in, in the company um, to create the outcomes that you're that you're looking for. But I, I try to do what I you know what Bill Belichick. Uh, mm. so I'm going to use always these Boston sports analogies. Oh yeah. Bill Belichick, when they ask him what kind of football do the Patriots play, he always says situational football. But if you were to go ask Bill Walsh. The great 49er, you know, coach, he would say, we played a West Coast offense. Well, here's the <laughs> difference. Uh, the, that at some point, the West Coast offense can be defensed. And right. so if you're playing a certain way, a one-way approach, then you can actually put together a defense to, you know, hopefully minimize that. It didn't always work against the 49ers, but the thought process is um, that you, people can find a way to take away your best um, weapon. Bill right. Belichick comes out and say, situational football, it all depends who the opponent is. So we don't have one particular way of, of playing football. We adapt based right. upon the competition whom we're going up against um, that week. And so I think that's part of what I try to do in, in, leading, in leading the organization, that there isn't just a one-way approach in how we lead and manage people. You have to be adaptable in a way that fits the situation at hand. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, Ariaka is, is a 10-year-old startup, uh, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, and the CEO really does carry the responsibility for building the company culture. Um, how do you do that? And, and, you know, what's unusual or unique about your culture? So one of the ways is, is that you really do try to exude the values of, of what the company mm. uh, represents uh, uh, collectively. And so I have a very open style um, with folks here. 
I, 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 my door's always open. I'm always walking around. I'm engaging. I send out weekly communications, making sure people are informed uh, of, of what's going on. I try to really do create a culture where we recognize um, the, the, the team and individuals who help contribute to the team. The quote John Wooden, you know, the star of the team is the team. And so right. part of my approach is really about the team. How is the team performing? What elements of the team, what, what are the attributes of this team that allow us to deliver the outcomes that we need to um, achieve as a company? And so mm. it's just things like that. I think being authentic, just being, yeah. you know, sort yeah. of who you are. I don't try to be something that I'm not. Um, I, I like to put myself out there and all my vulnerabilities, all my warts and whatever strengths, um, et cetera. And I think people respond more to authenticity um, than to you trying to be something that you're not. But the other piece that's also important, I learned this from Red Auerbach, uh, another great Boston um, uh, reference. <laughs> right. you know, Red Auerbach said um, he used to come into neighborhoods back in the day, and I don't know, he was looking for the next great Celtic or something like that right, would, um, right. on the playgrounds there. But he would always say things like, um, the team, um, you're never going to get the team to perform at a high level if they don't think you care about them. Mm. So he always says, Yo, you got to show that you care about them. If you listen to those old Celtics, um, you know, you hear them all talk about how the Celtics were a family, mm-hmm. how they all supported mm-hmm. one another. Even 60 plus years later, they, you know, as teammates, <clears throat> they are all still uh, together communicating um, with one another. So if the people on your team don't believe you care about them, you're never going to be able to gain their trust and get their best effort yeah. um, going yeah. forward. So I try to make sure. That this, you know, all my the folks who work with me, that they know that I care about them as an individual, as a person, um, more so than I care about, you know, the the next dollar that we bring in the door. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, Matt. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Do they still have something to prove? Mm. Right, and so there is, um, and that's a, a competitive thing that. Um, the, the, the person who still feels like they have something to prove is going to wake mm. up every day and be motivated, still be curious, not take things for granted. You know, we, we are paid for what we know, um, but it's what we don't know that actually makes the difference. And are you a person who's mm. able to get outside your comfort zone and go explore the things that you don't know so that you can bring that back into your repertoire, the things that you know? So I always mm-hmm. look for people who still feel like they have something to prove. I found since coming to Silicon Valley, you know, when I go interview people, I try to fill out my leadership team. The number of people I came across with who put their who would put their feet up on on my desk and lean back and say, "Prove to me why I should join you." Uh, <laughs> right. And so right away, very know, different process. Right. Yeah. Right. Different. Just an entirely different different process. It's like they already feel like, hey. I'm LeBron James. You yeah, got to convince right. me to come join you. Those are not the people whom I want. I want the person <laughs> who looks across at, across the table, the desk for me, and says, "Hey, I still feel like I can really, you know, grow, but I can mm-hmm. add a lot of value. You know, competitive. They want to. They want to win. They want to succeed, but also they want to do it in a way that is ethical, but then collaborative, and who exude the right kind of." 
values, um, you know, for us as well. Yeah. Awesome. Matt, you've been super generous with your time and we've just got one last question. We ask all of our guests and, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone that's got their eyes on, uh, say, their own corner office someday? You know, great question. So you're going to come to a point in your life where you're going to be alone with your own thoughts and you're going to ask yourself, am I all that I could be if not Mm. for whatever that if not for may be for you, whether you're a woman uh, like minority or, or whatever it may, whatever, whatever it may be. And how you answer that question will determine a lot about how you're going to move forward. Mm. If you default to um, that the world has done me wrong, you're singing a muddy waters um, blues tune, the world has done me wrong, then you're going to be in a position where you're blaming everybody. Um, You're going to have a lot of negativity, a lot of negative energy surrounding you. But if you take the step back and say, um, it's not because of my whatever ethnicity or gender. Yeah, we understand that these things are going to happen in life, that people may not give you those opportunities because of whatever. Um, But find the optimism, the positivity to and the resilience to put that foot forward. And not let those things um, define you, right? right. You know, right. Don't, don't, you define you. Don't let other people define you. You define yourself. And so, if I was giving any sort of advice, I, I would just say, love yourself. Mm. And uh, if you love be yourself, be happy. Be happy, right? man. <laughs> I mean, life is life is short. Be happy. I mean, John Lennon. You know, Sorry, they asked him one day, John Lennon, what. What do you want in life? To be happy. Exactly. Yeah. And when you're yeah. happy, you can then be more optimistic and mm. positive and not surround yourself with negativity that right. sort of slows you down. Right. So true. Well, Matt Carter, CEO of Ariaka Networks, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office and best of luck as you continue to grow the enterprise. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 